All right, so if you've got your uh, cheat sheet there, the half sheet, cheat sheet, break, break that out, the one that uh, has the little table at the bottom, like that, <clears throat> get that sheet out. I want to give us an overview of the different approaches to biblical interpretation that we've been covering. And we'll start with this one that's all the way on the left on the board. It's all the way on the bottom on your sheet. The single meaning view when it comes to interpreting Scripture. The single meaning view starts with this idea that there's a total alignment between the divine author and the human author. That the human author never said anything that was counter to the divine author. The human author never said anything that misled anybody. And the human author totally understood the meaning of his message. Okay, so think back to the Old Testament. You've got an Old Testament prophet. He's relaying a message to Israel. He totally understood the meaning of the message. Now, did he totally understand the significance of the message? Not always, no. Because obviously, through the Bible, we have storylines develop. You've got more and more detail that are added. Uh, You've got a prophecy and then a prophecy about the same subject later that adds more detail. And on and on it goes. And so we see the expansion of significance, but we never see the changing of meaning. The prophet, whatever he said, is what he meant, and it's true, and it's fixed. It never gets changed by someone else later on down the road. So the single meaning view states that no hidden meanings exist in Scripture. All meaning is wrapped up in the author's intent, and it's preserved by later authors. All passages with their meanings, harmonize. So the great task of coming up with your biblical doctrine, your biblical theology, is seeing, okay, well, how does Isaiah fit with Ezekiel, fit with Malachi, fit with Matthew, fit with John? Okay, you work all that together, you fit it all together. But as you're doing that, you're realizing no one is changing anybody's meaning on anything. But the meaning is all the same, uh, or is fixed, because there's a total alignment between the divine author and the human author. Okay, and that's the view that I hold to. That's the view that I teach from, so there you go. Now, as you start moving away from that, you get a view that says, well, there's mostly alignment between the divine author and the human author, but not always. There are some fuller or hidden meanings in the text, because let's face it, when you read through the New Testament and you see how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, there are some times when you say, I wouldn't have done that. Right? That's interesting. He's using that passage in that way, and and this class looked at some of those last week. But you've got human authors later on using previous texts by human authors in a way that's just interesting. And so it leads some Bible interpreters to say, well, there must be a, a fuller meaning that was not understood by that first author. So the second, third, fourth authors come along, and they bring out the full hidden meaning later on. But this view says, only inspired authors were able to see that deeper meaning. So it's not like, okay, you've got Matthew quoting Hosea, and we're going to look at this one in a minute. Matthew quoting Hosea, and he's saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea is saying that. God is saying, I called Israel my son out of Egypt. I saved them out of Egypt. And then later on, Matthew applies that verse to Jesus. So the people who say there's a fuller meaning there saying, well, Hosea was actually speaking of Christ. He just didn't realize it. And later on, Matthew is saying, oh, okay, well, I'm going to connect the dots for the reader. Hosea was speaking of Christ. And that's what these Bible interpreters are saying is happening. Now, they're not saying, now let's all go back to the Old Testament and find a whole bunch of hidden meanings. They're saying it's limited to what the New Testament did with Old Testament passages. And then you have this view that actually starts to expand on that and say, well, it's not limited to the inspired authors. We can all find hidden meanings in the Bible. So this This view is not critically concerned with, doesn't count it as critically important with the author and author alignment, capital A and lowercase a authors. That's not incredibly important. There's a fuller meaning, a spiritual meaning to some text, and it was hidden in the original context of the passage, but Christian readers today can find those meanings. And so they go back, especially in the Old Testament, and they look through and they say, okay, Well, you've got this going on in the life of Joseph. And even though the New Testament never connects this event in the life of Joseph with the life of Christ or with whatever, I'm seeing it, and I'm going to preach it that way, I'm going to teach it that way, that this event in the life of Joseph was a type of Christ or was a there was a teaching, a deeper teaching here that they couldn't have understood then that we understand now. 
and we have more license with that view to go back and find those hidden meanings. Okay, so those are basically the three views, and it all starts with how do you view the alignment between the one who's inspiring, God, and the one who is inspired, the human author. And it's not just Old Testament and New Testament, that's mainly where we see this, but we looked a couple weeks ago, this class did, at Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan parable. Who can remind us what he did with that? Anybody remember what Augustine did with that? You remember? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <clears throat> That's a pretty accurate summation, right? Augustine went to the Good Samaritan parable and basically said, look, you've got um, this man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell on hard times. Well, the hidden fuller sense of that is we're actually learning that that's Adam. Adam went from Jerusalem, the heavenly state, to Jericho, the fallen state. And he just goes on through the parable and he finds all kinds of hidden connections and meanings in that parable. And so he was obviously taking this view here, wasn't he? Because he had license to go hunting out hidden meanings. The New Testament never made those connections. Paul didn't come along later and say, hey, remember the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus taught? Well, here are a bunch of connections that I'm making. Paul never did that. And so um, Augustine was pretty fast and loose with uh, hidden meanings. And of course, like I said, I'm on this side of the spectrum. So I look at that and say, that's really crazy. But I want us to practice so that we can understand some more about what this means how this affects our Bible interpretation. And I want us to start in Genesis chapter 1. You can take out your full sheet now, Genesis chapter 1, and follow along on the sheet. And let's look at just verse 16. Genesis chapter 1. And would someone read verse 16 for us? Okay, so you think that verse is just about God creating lights in the sky, but not so fast. There's something else going on in the text. C.I. Schofield, how many of you have heard of Mr. Schofield? Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, several of you. It's one of them, it was like the most famous study Bible for a long time. One of the first true study Bibles. Well, Schofield says of Genesis 1.16... Uh, read it one more time, Joseph. Okay, what do you think that greater light is? No. Well, spell sun for me, Jerry. Oh, okay. Well, you're close. He says the greater light is the S-O-N, sun. He says the greater light here represents Jesus Christ. What's the, uh, the lesser light to rule the night? What do you think that is in the passage? The moon. You're so carnal, you guys. Get, get spiritual here. The moon is the church, Schofield says. How about the stars in the sky? Well, those are individual believers. <laughs> so... So yeah, just all you got to do is read the text with a deeper sense, right? Now, which view is this? Is this single meaning, inspired census plenier, or uh, the traditional census plenier? Which view? We're all the way down here, right? All the way here. Because in the New Testament, do you see any reference to the Genesis account talking of the church? No, you don't. So there's not a reference point where you're saying, okay, there's an inspired author making this connection. This is just Schofield who apparently had one too many burritos one night and is writing by candlelight, and that's what he came up with, okay? They had uh, burritos before they had electricity. And so uh, you've got these three views, and what I want us to do as we walk through these is uh, figure out which view is being espoused by the teaching. Uh, I should mention, census plenier just sounds really fancy. It really just means, um, it's backwards because it's Latin, but it means fuller meaning. So, plenier is the word for fuller or full or what deeper, and census is the word for meaning, okay? So, it just means fuller meaning, all right? We already mentioned this one, but let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 2.15. We looked at this one last week. Going from the first book of the Old Testament now to the first book of the New Testament, 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, and again, this class looked at this last week. Let's start in verse 14. Would someone read Matthew 2, 14 and 15? Mike, go ahead. So if I were teaching this passage today and I stood up here and said, Matthew is here showing us that Hosea in his original prophecy was speaking of Christ, which view am I taking? Which of these three views am I taking? That's right, the inspired census planear view, okay? We're going to try to go through these pretty quick because at the, the bottom is where I want us to spend a lot of our time. But if I said, okay, Matthew is here teaching us that Hosea had a hidden meaning, a fuller meaning, a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning in his text, then I'm taking this view, this middle view, saying Matthew is drawing out a hidden meaning. Now again, me personally, I wouldn't teach that because I hold to a single meaning view. I believe Hosea was speaking of Egypt, period. Or it's not Egypt, Israel, <laughs> period. Okay, that he was speaking through God speaking through him. He was inspired. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is in reference to Jesus. And so Matthew later on is making a correspondence between two events. He's making a correspondence between two things and expanding the significance of the passage, though the meaning never changed. I wouldn't say that Hosea was speaking of Christ. Okay? I, th I believe that changes Hosea's prophecy, and I don't want to do that. Okay? <clears throat> Song of Solomon, third one. There are several teachers out there today who will say the book of Song of Solomon is actually a picture of Jesus and the church, that you've got Solomon and his lady, and they're very excited about each other as you read through those chapters, and people say, well, there's, there's more going on than just Solomon and his wife, but we see that there's a reflection of Jesus and the church, and that's the true meaning of the passage or of the book even. Which view is that? Okay, why? <laughs> well, why is it this one on the left and not the one in the middle? Okay, so there's no connection, there's no correspondence, there's no quotation given that way at all. This is just a, we're on our own finding hidden meanings, spiritual meanings, deeper meanings in the text, right? Okay. Fourth one on that left column, Isaiah 53.12. In Isaiah 53.12, you can turn there if you want, but this is that great passage speaking of Jesus, Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53.12, <clears throat> there's a specific aspect of the suffering servant brought up where it says, second half of the verse, he was numbered with the transgressors. So if I stood up here and taught that Isaiah 53.12 was speaking of Jesus Christ, which view am I taking? Okay, Mike says inspired. Okay, so why would it be single meaning, Andy? Good. And it actually goes a little farther in the gospel. Well, I'll pause there. Maybe Logan's going to make the connection. Go ahead, Logan. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we've got multiple things going on here. It is the single meaning view. Okay. And here's why. When you read through Isaiah 53, there's obviously one person who's being spoken of here. There's no initial person being spoken of apart from the idea of, of the coming Messiah. This is clearly in reference to the coming Messiah. There's reference that he will bear the sins, that he will take on 
the sicknesses and sorrows. All of that's going on. There's only one. But furthermore, you get into the New Testament and you have several of these verses applied directly to Christ, saying this is who Isaiah was talking about, okay? Uh, there, was no, uh, there was no like double fulfillment going on or, or uh, anything like that, a near and far fulfillment, where Isaiah was referencing somebody who was alive during his day and then he was talking about someone else. There's not even that. This is just totally squarely about Christ. In that portion I read in verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Christ directly applied that verse to himself in Luke 23 and said, this is talking about me. And so the meaning of, of Isaiah 53, 12 has always been talking about Christ only, always, right? So we have to be careful because sometimes the view that I hold to can kind of be characterized as, well, then you never see Christ in the Old Testament or never Christ in prophecy or anything like that. Or you only see Christ in prophecy when an explicit statement made later on that this is about Christ. But that's not always true. Uh, when you see a passage like Isaiah 53, not every one of these verses <clears throat> is cited in the New Testament, I don't think. I think there's one that's not. But that doesn't mean that that one that's not isn't about Christ. Okay? Very clearly, the meaning of Isaiah 53 is absolutely wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's been the only meaning ever since it was the prophecy was given, okay? Let's do the next column. Top right, the Passover lamb was a type of Christ. The Passover lamb was a type of the Messiah who was to come. Which view is that? Why do you say that, Andrew? In 1 Corinthians 5, it says he is our Passover lamb. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so there is an explicit New Testament statement saying that the, the Passover lamb was a type, a shadow of Christ. Again, in the single meaning view, it's not that you rule out all types and shadows, but I have said in this class, I personally like to limit myself to what the New Testament points out. I don't like to go hunting for things that the New Testament never points out. I think that can be real dangerous. But, but we see the Passover lamb wasn't just something that existed and went away and that's it. It actually did serve a greater purpose among the people of Israel in pointing them to the future sacrifice of their Messiah, and the New Testament makes that explicit connection. Okay? How about the next one? David and Goliath is a picture of Jesus and sin. You'll sometimes hear people teach this passage saying, actually, let me, <laughs> let me start with a really wacky view and then we'll, we'll do two more views. So you've got uh, someone saying, David and Goliath, that's about you and your battles in life. You're David, and God has given you the smooth stones that you need to fight your battles. Goliath is your battle, and you are equipped to go out into battle and to take down the monsters in your life, or however you want to phrase it, okay? Don't do that when you teach that, okay? If any of you have the opportunity to teach David and Goliath, don't say that, okay? Uh, someone else might say, okay, yeah, we shouldn't put ourselves in David's shoes here. But instead, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is he's the offspring of David, the true David, you could say. And Goliath is a picture of sin. And this is Jesus destroying sin on our behalf, Jesus conquering sin, Jesus conquering death. Okay? You have people who take that view. Um, but both of those views actually fall in the same camp. And which camp would that be out of those three main views? Okay, and why is that? Okay, there you go. It's not, it, it, first of all, there's no New Testament reference to David and Goliath being a picture of, of Jesus and sin. But it's also just looking for something deeper than what's in the story. I mean, the story on its own is miraculous enough, isn't it? That David would kill Goliath. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a testimony to God's faithfulness just right there in Israel? But to say, well, wait a second. To avoid, because if we say that that's all there is in the passage, is just David defeating Goliath, then what's the application for us today? Then we might jump and say, see, we're David and God's going to equip us to go fight our monsters, so we have to avoid that and we have to say, this must be talking about Jesus. That's how it applies to us today. That's, that's not right either. We have to avoid looking for deep spiritual meanings that just aren't there in the Bible, okay? <laughs> True. Yes, very true. 
The second to last one, Sarah and Hagar. You guys remember Sarah and Hagar in the book of Genesis? Teaching that they allegorically represent two covenants. Which view is that? Why do you say that? for everybody. Yep, Galatians 4. Go down to verse 21. And someone read uh, 21 to 24 for us. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. We'll just stop there. So he never actually lists Sarah, but Sarah's obviously the one implied there. Galatians 4, 21. Yeah. So here we have in the New Testament, Paul looking at an event in the Old Testament and saying, there's allegory. What does that mean for us? Okay, why do you say that? Yeah, well, yeah, and beyond that, he didn't change the meaning of the original, did he? He's not going back. He, he's not saying, look, Sarah and Hagar, did they exist, did they not exist? Doesn't matter. There's an allegory in there. He's not saying that. He's not saying, uh, Sarah and Hagar, I know that you think that this is the point of the story, but here's the real point of the story that no one could understand until now. He's not saying that either. But he's making a divinely connected correspondence. And this is one of those hard passages. I mean, if you take a view like I do on this site, it's like, okay, that's, this is weird, right? <laughs> this is interesting. I would never teach that passage that way uh, in Genesis if I didn't have this. But when I'm teaching that passage in Genesis, I can say, well, look, there's actually New Testament basis for making a connection between the life of uh, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar to what's going on now after that and the events to follow based on what Paul said. So, um, you could say at the, at the absolute most, what's happening is that Paul is making a divine connection between that uh, Genesis narrative and the events in the life of Israel and others, and of course, leading up to Christ. But is he changing the meaning? No, he's not. When you get into any type of census, plenier stuff, that means you're seeing new meanings in the passage. And that's not what Paul's doing. He's making a connection. Final one we'll look at, John chapter 11. Turn back to the Gospel of John, verses 47 to 53. John 11, very interesting passage. John chapter 11, the very end. Would someone read 47 to 53 for us? John 11, 47 to 53. All right. Someone summarize that in your own words. What just happened? In your own words, tell me what just happened with 
Caiaphas there. Do we need to read it again? Okay. So you've got this man Caiaphas prophesying without knowing it, prophesying about Jesus. Now, there are some people who say, okay, look at this section. Look what God did through Caiaphas. This is a paradigm for how prophecy works. God will have someone say something, and that person doesn't know the meaning of their words, or there's a perhaps double meaning or something like that, and we won't know it until later on. What do you think about that? Is that how God issues prophecies? Yeah, if you guys remember the four-step interpretive process, again, on this half sheet that you have, you'll notice that there are certain things numbered one, two, three, and four. Those are the four steps when you interpret passages. Step number one is observation. And Dean just made a very important observation. Caiaphas wasn't a prophet, (laughs) right? He wasn't a prophet of God. He wasn't someone who loved the Lord. He wasn't someone who was seeking to be used of the Lord. Uh, Very important, because some people will point to this and say, well, look, there was no alignment between the divine author and the human author at all. Caiaphas wasn't aligned with the divine author. Caiaphas wasn't saying, this man Jesus is the Christ, and he's going to die on behalf of the people, and we should all have faith in him. He was saying something of his own accord, something that was very self-serving in Israel, and yet God had a hidden meaning there. Well, that is a unique situation. That's what I'm going to say. That's a unique situation. I don't think that's how it worked with other prophets, with prophets that God actually called to the office of prophet among His people. I don't think that's how it worked. I think this is a unique situation. So if you're going to take the view that this is how prophecy works, that God issues prophecies apart from the human's own knowledge, you're going to end up in one of these two camps, that they're just hidden all over the place because they didn't actually even know what they were saying. Okay, But even so, as you look at this, Caiaphas had... A, a singular meaning in what he was saying when he said that, hey, it's not good that the whole nation would die, but that just one man should die. He meant something. It's not like he said something without meaning at all. There was a single meaning to what he said, but the significance was greater than he knew. Okay? All right. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, so in uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, we've looked at that in the last few classes here. In, those, uh, in that passage, what do you have going on with the Old Testament prophets? They were making searches and inquiries about two things. What are the two things that, you, that are in that passage? Do you know, Jerry? Yep. When. Who and when. So, when they issued a prophecy, what they said had a meaning, uh, what they said had a meaning that was fixed, that wouldn't be changed later, though they didn't know the full significance. So in Isaiah 53, again, this great passage about Jesus bearing the sins of the, of the people, did they know that His name would be Jesus? Did they know He would look the way He did, that He would be five foot five or whatever He was, that He would have the complexion that He had, that He would come, did, did they know He would come at year zero? <laughs> no, okay? So they didn't know the full significance of the who and the when. But what they said had a meaning. There was nothing deeper in there. It's just as more revelation came later, the picture gets filled out, doesn't it? And we have the advantage of living on this side of history where we can look and say, okay, here's the full picture. That doesn't mean that they didn't know what they were writing. It doesn't mean that their meaning was changed. It just means that they were at that part on the timeline and they just didn't have as much information as we have. Okay. All right, so let's do four... uh, sample cases here where you can apply this knowledge to particular issues. 
The first is, what is the meaning of a day? <laughs> What's the meaning of a day? So we're going to start with something I hope that's relatively simple. I hope. If this takes the rest of our time, we may have bigger issues than uh, I know of. But what is the meaning of a day? In Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation account. Hey, this is where we started with uh, Schofield's interpretation of the lights. But we're not talking about the lights. We're talking about the days. As the, the narrative goes, God creates, and morning and evening were the first day. And then morning and evening were the second day. And morning and evening were the third day. Okay, so you have days happening. And how many days did God create? Very good. I was hoping to catch you saying seven, but you did a good job. Six. We are not seven-day creationists here. We're six-day creationists. All right, so, but then you get to the New Testament, and in 2 Peter 3, I'll just read this to you. 2 Peter 3, 8, Peter says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. You paying attention? Don't let it escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So, this gives some people the impression that the days spoken of in the creation account were not meant to be taken as literal days, but rather long periods of time, because even a thousand years, well, what's a thousand years, right? That's just a long period of time. It's not even a literal thousand years. And so, you go back to Genesis, and you read the creation account, and those days don't represent literal days, but just represent long periods of time. You want to give me some feedback on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good job, Jerry. Andy. You're saying that Peter's point isn't to teach us about the deep meaning of Genesis 1? <laughs> okay. He has a unique relationship with time. He's the creator of time. Transcendence. God's time is not our time. Right. Yep. With with a deep with a deeper sense of what's actually being said. <laughs> Rex, did you have a, a thought too a moment ago? He, the I am. 
That's it. Okay, Jim. Yes, very. That's a very. It doesn't just say day. It says morning and evening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. Yeah. When you get to that point where you're saying uh, morning and evening aren't actual days. You really don't have to keep the days in order at that point either. You can just mix it all up because why not, right? So, okay. That was the easier one. <clears throat> Second question. <laughs> we can settle this and let's see. If we average it out, we got five minutes on this one. We could do it, right? How are people chosen for salvation? <laughs> Someone tell me what John 3.16 says. Off the top of your head, just say it. Okay. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes. Okay, now turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 28. John 3.16 makes it clear that whosoever believes will receive eternal life. But look at what we find in Romans 8, 28 through 30. 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Someone want to read those for us? Romans 8, 28 to 30. Go ahead, Jerry. All right. So, in the first example, when we were talking about the meaning of a day, we were discussing the changing of meaning of an earlier passage, okay? We're not dealing with that issue so much in this conflict as we are with how do we maintain harmony between such passages. One passage is saying, John 3.16, whosoever will. Well, what happened to all the whosoever language in Romans 8, 28 through 30, especially verse 30? It says these, so there are a, there's a plurality of people, but apparently not all people, who are predestined, called, justified, glorified. They are assuredly going to inherit eternal life, implying that those outside of the group will not inherit eternal life. So, how are these two passages to be reconciled? This is a lifelong struggle. I'm not going to pretend like you're going to change your view or get settled on it or anything like that in this short time that we have. But what are some basic principles as you deal with conflicts like this? You say, okay, you've got this passage in John, you've got this passage in Romans. How do they, if they both have a fixed meaning, how do we harmonize them? What do you think? Okay, so we can plead ignorance as creatures, right, uh, of the deep things of God. And, and there's certainly times for that where we say, okay, well, look, this is wrapped up in God's amazing work in the world, and how are we to plumb the depths of that? At the same time, this has been revealed to us, and we've got to do something with it, especially if you're a teacher and you're getting asked questions about it. Well, how do you reconcile this? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Yeah, that's that's a tough that's a tough one to squeeze out of there. <laughs> uh, boy, yeah, you can sit on that and stomp on it. I don't think that that interpretation will come squirting out of there. That's a tough one. Um, that's a toughie. Okay, yeah. So now now we're starting to tiptoe into okay harmonizing. Basically, what you got going on is. 
you interpret John 3.16, for instance, with, with your view as to what whosoever believes means. And for a lot of people, that means anybody indiscriminately, apart from God's total intervention and irresistible grace in their lives, but by their own free will, they're able to believe. That's what whosoever means. But then you've got other people who say, well, when we take our the biblical theology as a whole, even just the New Testament, we see that there's more going on when someone gets saved than just that person exercising his own free will apart from God. There's something going on about the calling of God here. There's something going on with God coming into that person's life and drawing that person. Even in the book of John, you get a lot of this language. <laughs> you don't have to leave the book of John to see this. And so, you can. what you end up doing is you start interpreting one side through the lens of the other a lot of times. But I, we just need to be careful and say, actually, these harmonize well. And so, if you take the view that, uh, look, Romans 8, 28 through 30, it's inescapable. God is the one who's absolutely sovereign over salvation uh, on His own free will, and Ephesians 1 plays into this too. Apart from any human will, He chooses who will be saved, and they are saved apart from their own human will. This is just an act of God. If you see that, then you're going to go to Romans 3.16 and you say the whosoever still means whosoever, but it's not talking about this big idea of just everyone's a free agent and apart from the divine working of God, they can just choose to believe or not. It's saying that it doesn't matter what race they are, what ethnicity they are, where they are in life, it's really truly whosoever, male, female, slave, free, whosoever believes, but that believing comes from an initiatory work of God. Okay? And so, anyway, you wrestle with this kind of stuff through Scripture, but what you've got to be careful about doing is not importing your own presuppositions and saying, this passage must mean this because this is what I believe about how the world works. If a passage is challenging you to just change your view of how the world works, change your view of how the world works. Okay? And so, I'm not here to say one side's right or one side's the other or whatever here to, in our time today. I'm just here to say, Keep good hermeneutics and don't start changing the meaning of passages so that it fits with your preconceived notions, okay? We're doing a lot this morning, sorry. Who should be baptized? In Genesis 17, God called Abraham to do something pretty radical and said it wasn't just for him, but it was for all the males in Israel and the males in his household. What was that? Circumcision, that's where it's instituted in the Bible. Jews, of course, still practice this today. On the eighth day, the male children are circumcised. It's called a bris, and they've got their, uh, the guy there who does it, Moyle. Is that the name of the guy? Does anybody know Jewish stuff? I don't really know it that well. Okay, so it's still done today. Now, why did God have that happen in Israel? What's the purpose? They're coming for us, Michaela. <clears throat> what, what's the purpose of that? In Genesis, why did God do that? That was a weird thing, huh? Why? Why? Okay. <laughs> All right. What was it identifying these males as? Okay. That they were Israelites chosen by God in covenant with God, right? Sign of the covenant. Because God made a covenant with Abraham, didn't he? And this is the sign of the covenant. So what we see in the Old Testament is that God worked through covenants in Israel, even before Abraham. It wasn't just with Abraham, even before Abraham. God worked through covenants, and He identified entire households as His covenant people, didn't He? You see in Genesis 17, He doesn't just say, you, Abraham. He says, those males in your household, it's for them too. And it was through the marker of circumcision that they identified whole households as covenant members. It started with Abraham and the covenant he made with him, and it continued through the institution of the Mosaic Covenant. So another covenant came along, Mount Sinai, Moses, Ten Commandments, all that. That didn't change this covenant sign in Israel, but the covenant sign was maintained through Moses and onward and onward went all the way up to the time of Christ, right? And even today for those who reject Christ, this covenant sign is still in effect, now, the, God, or the covenant sign of God's covenant people continues by households today, and the symbol has changed from circumcision to baptism, and we see in the New Testament when 
whole households were getting baptized, that baptism is for everyone in the household. For example, turn to Acts, Acts 16. If you're in Romans, just go back a book. Acts 16. This is the instance with the Philippian jailer. You've got the jailer crying out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's down in verse 30. And in verse 31, you've got Paul and Silas saying, this is Acts 16, 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So now they're including his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So do you know what this proves? We should baptize babies. Because in Israel, the male children were circumcised, the covenant sign. In the New Testament, whole households are now identified as being in covenant with God through the sign of baptism. Open and shut case. What do you think? <laughs> see, who's... Stuckers have the youngest one here, I think. What do you say? I can get some water from the kitchen. We'll bring them in and... Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Does he have to make a profession? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, this is the, uh, the view of infant baptism. It's called pedo-baptism. Presbyterians take this view, Anglicans, Lutherans, several. Uh, in fact, you look through church history, and largely because of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, you see a lot of now Protestant denominations practicing infant baptism, and this is their argument. Are they practicing good hermeneutics? Why not? Does that mean they're in conflict? Then we just have to choose which passages we like better? Yeah. Yeah, it also doesn't say they didn't have faith, right? That'd be a little... They made a profession of faith and we just went to his house and said, I don't care what your wife believes or whatever, you know? Or, hey, your children, we're, we're going to baptize all of them. Uh, that's not the way that we view baptism, is it? And <clears throat> I don't think you get that from this passage. And then the bigger argument, okay, I'm, I'm giving you a two-minute presentation that's a caricature of, of the whole argument. But there's really not much to go on more than this in the New Testament because you never have an instance of any infants being baptized in the New Testament. So you have to do these kinds of things. And so we just need to be careful, even though we love and appreciate lots of people who practice infant baptism. They're not handling the text right when they say that it's in the text. It's just not there. Andy. Yep. That's called the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture. That has some pros and cons to it. It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith as a part of their paradigm, which teaches infant baptism. So, to use that example, those who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith would say that it's clear in Scripture that infants were baptized in the New Testament because they believe the clear passages should drive the interpretation of the less clear passages. Now, that case in point proves the problem with, with that tool. Who gets to determine what's clear and what's not? Well, yeah, there are a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah, so we just have to be careful when we say, well, look, Acts 16 is unclear. Let's go to the clear passages and those will interpret. I don't think Acts 16 is unclear. I don't think any scripture is unclear by God's fault. Anytime we think a passage is unclear, it's, for, it's an issue on our end. And so we just have to be careful saying, well, that's unclear, and I'm just going to use these passages that I agree with to beat up on the one I don't agree with, because that's how it's often used, okay? 
<laughs> you don't? No. <laughs> yeah, baptize the dogs and drown the cats. That's the teaching, I think. Oh. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Joe. Not to Neil. We'll keep to Neil. One per household. The other, other one's got to go. <laughs> oh. All right. We have... We have 45 seconds to talk about this last one. Oh, my. Okay, let me just give you a, well, should I even give you an overview? I don't know. That's a tough one. So basically, <clears throat> what you got going on with this last one, the question is, which people receive the fullness of Israel's promises? You've got in the Old Testament promises made to Israel. Not all of them have been fulfilled. A lot of them have been fulfilled. Not all of them have been fulfilled. So what do we do with these unfulfilled promises that were made to Israel? Well, we either, one... Uh, say that they're going to be fulfilled in the future. Number two, we say actually they were fulfilled in history. We just have to move the definitions around a little bit and say that it did get fulfilled and that there's nothing left to be fulfilled. But I, I, you really got to move stuff around pretty heavily. Uh, thirdly, you could say they forfeited their right to those promises that because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of whatever, God has said, well, now those promises aren't, aren't yours anymore. And kind of tied into that view is the, the final view where you could say, actually, Israel still exists. Israel is just the church now. The church is true Israel and has inherited all the promises uh, that were made to them. So those are the major views um, of that. And I've used my 45 seconds. I don't really know how I could say much more without going for another five to ten minutes. But you've got in Galatians 3 a tough passage. Um, from our perspective, we take a you know, the single-meaning view, which means Israel means Israel in their context. We don't believe the definition of Israel has changed. But then in Galatians 3, you have this idea that all who are in the church are sons of Abraham. All who by faith are sons of Abraham. So does that mean then that we should recognize that we now have become Israel? Well, I don't think so. Um, I preached on that a few years ago. It's online um, and would love to walk through it again. But Maybe we can start off next class before we go to Romans, talking through that a little more, because that will be very pertinent to Romans 9 through 11. So, okay. Sorry that this was heavier stuff. I hope that we got a little more practical where you could help identify some things. I hope when you hear some of the wackier side of all this stuff, like the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and Genesis 1 is in reference to the church, I hope you can identify very that as a bunch of fooey, okay? Count that as success, if you can do that. <laughs> and I hope that you grow in your personal conviction of what you believe about how Scripture works, and that you can be more confident in the way that you read Scripture and interpret Scripture. But there's just no simple, easy, basic way to talk about this stuff. When you, when you get into it, it gets deep very quickly. And so, uh, these lessons have all been recorded. You can go back through and listen to them again. I highly recommend doing that. If you leave here feeling a little confused, listen to them again as many times as you need to to help you become a better Bible student. That's the goal, okay? Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for the day you've given us and for our opportunity to fellowship together. Please bless our time and help my voice to remain and give us just a, a real sweet, encouraging time around your word as we look into it and seek to be built up by you. In Jesus' name, amen.